I've got hiccups. I'm so excited. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Podcastles. I'm Nikita and I'm here with my sister, Georgia. Hi! This week we're on our final episode of the season. I cannot believe it. I can't believe it either, Georgia. Thanks so much to everyone who's been listening and supporting the podcast. Whether you've recently joined us or been there from episode one, we love you all. And uh, particular fans that I just want to shout out, Nick, because apparently we have three fans in LA that are dogs, and that really excites me. So listeners Steve and Lizzie uh, say they, of course, listen as well and love the podcast. Thanks so much, guys. But they, after listening to each episode, repeat it and leave it on when they go out for their dogs, Mabel, Beauty and Derek, because apparently it soothes them, and I love that idea. So what you're saying is our voices put people to sleep? Possibly. (laughs) You know what? I'll take that. What I want to know is if I go, Mabel, Beauty, Derek... Are they are they going to, like, perk up and respond? And more importantly, I think I just did that to the uh, to the tone of Nintendogs. I was about to say that you sounded exactly like when you used to practice calling names for Nintendogs. Absolutely. I mean, shout out to anyone who actually gets that reference. But my poor Nintendogs, I have not visited them in, like, ten years. So, RIP. Anyway. Anyway. Thanks so much to our listeners. Including the dog listeners, as I've said. Yeah, and thank you for thank you for being with us for this season. For our final episode, we're going to be looking at castles under attack. Yes, and I am very excited about this. I thought I didn't know much about it, and then the more I sort of got into it, the more I went, oh yeah, I remember this stuff. Well, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of castles being attacked throughout the season as well. Yeah, and we also we talk a lot about sieges and besieging. We also not once but twice i believe this month have talked about where people dressed up and just walked in and that was how they got the castle and you know what that was a strategy we're going to talk about it a little bit later sort of being a bit sneaky but we want to make it evident that that is not the only way to get a castle in in this period. So um, we thought we'd do an episode summarising the different methods and explaining what we mean by everything so that in the future, when we reference attacking castles and particularly besieging and stuff, it'll make a bit more sense, hopefully. Yeah, I think so, Georgia. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I thought I'd start by just saying that besieging and attacking castles wasn't really focused on much by historians until like the 1990s. Often when you think about sort of medieval attacks, I feel like we're probably going to be mainly focusing on medieval, maybe a little bit of early modern. We normally think of like the knight on the horse with his little like lance or whatever. And I think for a long time, historians also focus on that because it's kind of, it's the stuff that people write poems about. But the period from 1000 to 1300 was actually... Uh, Lots of historians describe as the period of, like, castle warfare. And the castles were crucial. One other little disclaimer before we get started is that we should probably say, as historians or having studied history, we are kind of trained to come up with caveats and, like, depends on sort of phrases. So, of course, I must just quickly mention... The reason people attack castles and the way they attack castles depends on the following. Uh, The period. Is it a civil war? Is it a rebellion? Is it um, international war? The type of castle? The size of the army? The amount of 
resources they have, how much money they have. It depends on so many things. So we probably just need to start by clarifying that, right, Nick? Yeah, I think so. I thought we would start with why one may attack a castle in the medieval period. So to summarise what castles are used for, obviously they are residences for really important people, whether that's royals or nobles, and you could possibly get in and attack and take the leader. But they're also sort of the seat of government and where a lot of laws are made, a lot of decisions are made. It's also base for offensive operations. They can be a place that everyone reconvenes, gets ready and then goes out on the offensive. If you besiege a castle, not only are they stuck inside, that also means they can't be attacking places. Mm. It's also used for storage a lot. If you're trying to weaken a regime or a noble of some sort, then they're often holding a lot of munitions and food and all sorts of things. So they're very important places to attack to sort of make headway in a war. Yeah, and conversely, they're great to hold within a war. So you get some castles where they have to be taken because strategically your opponent is much stronger in that area because they've got this castle for all those reasons. Exactly. So... For an example, when William the Conqueror comes over, he sets up loads of castles strategically. Before his death in 1087, considering that Battle of Hastings is 1066, about 500 have been built. So, you know, he definitely sees the use of castles. Um, Some of those castles are put up for strategic reasons by kings and high nobles trying to sort of protect and defend certain aspects of the countryside. And others are built by nobles later on that just kind of want a castle because why wouldn't you want a castle? It's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) Whether or not you choose to attack a castle can vary. For example, one article I was reading talked about the fact that, you know, a civil war, so the civil war in the 17th century, would really want to use a lot of castles because it is all about getting certain aspects of the country back. Both sides are English and they want control over England. So... The more castles you can get, the better. However, I then thought of a counter to that, that like the Wars of the Roses, obviously both sides English, they didn't use castles at all, really. That was mainly fought on the battlefield. And you could also look at that as like, if you're all English, why would you bother attacking castles and sort of destroying castles? So there's sort of two sides to that coin. It's interesting because obviously the English Civil War is, there's a lot of castle taking and sieges as well. So I think it's it's interesting to know why people do different things. I don't know why the Wars of the Roses was fought on battlefields rather than castles instead. I'm sure lots of historians have looked at that, but uh, we're not going to today. <laughs> Obviously, we've looked a little bit at uh, why a castle might be attacked. Now we are going to move on to how a castle is attacked. <laughs> How to Attack a Castle, a Podcastles 2021 guide. Quick disclaimer, Podcastles in no way condones or associates with the attacking or besieging of any castle in the UK or elsewhere. Any attacks or sieges take place at the participants' own initiative without the support or advice of Podcastles and at the incumbent's own risk. Embarking on a castle attack or siege may lead to arrest, lawsuits, restraining orders, looking stupid on social media, being blocked by Podcastles on all social media and or death. Okay, now we can continue. How long did that take you to tongue twist? (laughs) this is when you want like a blue peter and this is one we attacked earlier yeah exactly this is how we did it we we dressed up and walked in yeah we just got 
a fancy dress thing. I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that later, but let's talk about some of the like more common ways maybe first. Besieging is the most common way to attack a castle. Uh, what that basically involves, I mean, besieging is kind of including everything around sort of surrounding and then attacking a castle. I always thought besieging was just surrounding it and sort of sitting around waiting for them to starve and come out. Not necessarily the case. Firstly, attacking a castle cannot be done lightly because it is so expensive. Whether you physically attack or whether you literally sit there surrounding them until they run out of food and have to give up. That is such a long process. You have to be able to fund all of your armies to stay sitting outside. You have to be able to feed them, often a lot of disease in the camps. It's really difficult. Dysentery. Yeah, it was a very big common thing in that time. So it's by no means like a cheaper option than fighting it out on the battlefield. Well, no, because because for all the time that you spend sitting around starving the other people out, you have to... Also be able to feed yourself. Also be able to feed yourself. Yeah. So King Stephen once spent £10,000 on besieging Exeter Castle. That is five times his estimated annual income. No way. Yeah. Also, often the case, um, the castles will have secret tunnels, which I think we saw at Warwick Castle. Mm. They often have their own wells and their own water supplies and things like that, so it doesn't take a short amount of time for them to run out of stuff, you know? Lots of castles were so well prepared and had so many stores that they could last for a long, long time. As we've said, very long and very slow. The most simple form of doing a siege is to, as I say, sit and wait around for people to starve on the inside. You cut off their supplies. If you're not going to be able to do that entirely, it's at least a good way to start because you weaken the people to start with. Hunger and sort of cutting off supplies was a very big factor in the surrender of lots of different castles across England. The uh, very famous siege at Kenilworth Castle that we've talked about before, for example, that lasted six months. When they finally gave up, they had two days of food left. So clearly hunger is a big part of it sometimes that's it and they go oh my gosh we don't have any supplies we can't do anything we give up now and you haven't had to do much and that's great sometimes you're gonna have to get into the castle and properly fight it out because they're not gonna just give up from being surrounded and that requires getting past the wall is probably the main thing there's also moats sometimes but the main thing to get past bring on the wall is the wall Sometimes they use things like ladders. I'm not sure I'd fancy climbing up a wall with attack, like defenders at the top of the wall. Yes. Now, that is the first thing I was really going to talk about. You can only send a few men at a time up a ladder, which makes them very easy targets because if there's only like one or two people coming over at once, that's much easier to shoot them down. Also, the ladders could be broken or pushed away whilst on them. People can also pour things over the top. I read one article that said, you know, the hot oil thing that people often talk about wasn't that common, but they would pour boiling water and other things over the top. They they did invent sort of siege towers and belfries. So siege towers were basically wooden constructions. They could be built on site, just outside the castle sort of thing, and they can fit loads of men inside and then provide shelter to both crossbowsmen that are, you know, want a sort of higher ground to attack from, but also for people trying to get close enough to 
the castle walls to climb over. It sort of provides a bit of shelter. Mm. Problem with that, of course, firstly, they're wooden, so you can just set fire to them. Also, because they would often be on wheels, so they could be pushed close to the to the walls, defenders of castles just started building up mountains of sort of mud against the walls so that you couldn't physically get the wheels close enough for the ladders to work. Yeah, well, that's good. Depends what side you're on. Um. Well, yeah, it does depend what side you're on. I read something really interesting in my research for this, Georgia, which is yeah. a slight tangent. But speaking of siege towers and protection for archers... Um, you know the crenellations on the top of the castle? Yeah. So that apparently was to provide cover for archers. But apparently there were like wooden slats that would fall back down. And I think from what I was reading, it sounds like the wooden slats would be in between the crenellations. Oh, right. Okay. And they're just not there anymore because it's wood and time. Well, obviously, we've chosen not to focus on defences this time. We were originally going to do defences and attack strategies, but it was just got too big. But a lot of the defensive strategies that we can see in castles today tell us a lot about how they were being attacked. So yeah. as the longbow came in and as sort of technological advancements were made, they would change the way the castle was defended, and that can tell us a lot about how they were being attacked. Well, I was going to say that that's like the the evolution of castles in general when the normans first come over and, and william the conqueror's building castles you get a lot of modern bailey castles specifically wooden but then obviously there's there's defensive issues so you get the stone keep castles which i think is what rochester is absolutely originally fire really effective way to get rid of a castle but then as we have mentioned so many times and not really focused on why we always sort of in the history of each castle go, well, it started out as a wooden Motten Bailey and then eventually it was upgraded to a stone keep. Why do you think that was? Because people kept attacking with fire and it wasn't working. So they replaced them. The other option from ladders is to go under the wall, actually. Not very often would that be to, you know, dig the whole way under the wall and pop up in the middle of, like, the courtyard and, you know, attack from within. That didn't happen that much. It did happen, but not that much. Yeah. Um, the main reason that this was used was actually they would dig under the wall, putting in timber frames as they go, and then they would sort of throw a bomb in, basically, or set fire to the timber and as the timber came down, it would obviously weaken all the foundations of the structure and the wall would fall down. Wow. So a few examples of this. During the Great Siege of Dover in 1216, Prince Louis of France, his army were there and the, they had miners burrowing tunnels mm -hmm. through the chalk beneath the castle walls, which then undermined the walls. And actually, the whole eastern tower of the gatehouse collapsed. So that's quite effective. Wow. Another time, uh, the attack of Rochester Castle in 1215. Oh, very similar time. When the corner of the keep collapsed after miners set a huge fire off in the tunnel using wood and pig fat. And that was quite common as well to put sort of fat and other things that would burn really well just to sort of destroy everything. Another reason that mining was really good is because the people inside the castle often couldn't tell and couldn't see. However, mm. sometimes people in the castles were aware that people were mining underneath them and they would then create their own mines from inside the castle, meet the attackers halfway and then like a sword fight would happen underground, under the wall. Mm. So they could sometimes get in there and stop them, basically. 
Now, sometimes, Nick, mm-hmm. you can't climb over it and you can't go under it. You have to go through it. You have to go through it. Yeah, indeed. So there were many ways to also just go straight through it. The first thing is battering rams that you see a lot in like movies and TV where you can bang on the doors, which are still wooden. So despite the fact that the whole castles are no longer wooden, you can still throw fire and bash in the wooden doors. Uh, Sometimes they wouldn't fully break through them, but it would weaken them. And basically these were useful because multiple men could put their force behind it. Rather than lots of single men attacking, you've got... Lots of married men. (laughs) You've got one piece of equipment that lots of men are putting their weight behind. Mm. There were also catapults. The mangonel was a very common one. It was basically a, a device to throw stones. And it had a short little arm. You pull it back and you twist the rope Mm. really tight. So the tension is really tight. And then they would release it and it would fire. You could put loads of stuff in that and it was sort of weakened forces. You could throw things over the wall, but often like thrown at the wall to try and weaken the wall. Also, introduction of the trebuchet, which we've talked about before at Warwick Castle, I believe. Mm -hmm. This was a long arm pivoted between a pair of uprights and weights were attached basically and it would like sling things again and it could put a lot more weight in it. So these were much more accurate when they came in. They could throw much larger balls. They could actually start damaging much thicker walls. This was first recorded to be used in 1217. Wow. And then later on, you also have the introduction of gunpowder Now, they were first introduced to Europe in 1326, but weren't really used by the attackers originally because they weren't very accurate and they actually were a bit unreliable and ineffective to attack stone walls. So at first they were used more by the defenders, but after sort of a century or so of having them around, they start being used instead of catapults and they become more effective than these catapults we were talking about, like the trebuchet. And... um, They were used to expel the English from France in 1450 because apparently by that point, heavy artillery such as these could topple walls in hours. Wow. And only the wealthiest people could create walls and fortifications that would blunt cannon shots. So obviously massive game changer when that comes in. And also I think that's used a lot more in the Civil War which is probably why a lot of our castle histories stop at the Civil War because uh, if you've ever seen one of those ones that have been attacked by, by gunpowder and that sort of thing, there's, there's a reason you can't really see a lot of it and that is because they were very effective. <laughs> well, they, they blow up a lot of castles in the wake so that no one else can use them again. Well, yes, that's true as well. So we have one example of a mortar which survived from the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. It was cast in 1646 and they called it Roaring Meg. It was at Goodrich Castle. It basically could fire like little grenades, hollow iron balls filled with gunpowder and they would detonate it with a fuse. Hopefully, like in the ideal situation, it would detonate like once it hit its target. And there are various parliamentarian reports talking about how destructive this new mortar was, particularly against the Northwest Tower at Goodrich Castle. I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we eventually get round to Goodrich Castle, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Going back to catapults, because as I say, gunpowder doesn't come in for quite a while, and even when it does, it's often used by the defenders, not the attackers. Yeah. So if we return back to catapults for a little while, it's not just stones 
that they catapult across. Oh, no. We very interestingly have quite a few accounts of uh, biological warfare in the medieval period. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. One main way that is used in battle as well, sort of like the easiest example to give, is that English archers, they would never draw their arrows from quivers. They would actually stick all their arrows in the ground in front of them so that when they pick them up, they're covered in soil because if you get grazed by an arrow, it's not going to kill you. You know, it'll kill you if it hits you in the heart or something, but it's not going to kill you if you just get it through the arm or something. But what will kill you is uh, soil getting into your body when there is very, very limited medical resources and understanding of that sort of thing, and you would pretty much definitely die of infection, and we have tons of examples. And that is a primitive version of biological warfare, really. Much less primitive, yet just as misunderstood by people in the medieval period, was uh, literally hurling across dead cattle, some cases plague victims. That's grim over the towers now there are examples one of the articles i was reading they obviously didn't understand about like bacteria and sort of the spread of that kind of disease back then possibly they were if it's true that they were flinging victims that had died of the plague Mm. over walls they wouldn't have thought oh this will like infect everybody they actually probably thought that the smell of the plagued victims would either really distract the people or possibly kill them just from the smell. But of course, we now know, putting a plagued body in the middle of a camp is going to spread the plague. And so then a lot of the people inside would die of plague. You've also, of course, got the fact that a siege, Mm. of course, um, starves people. So to hurl over diseased animals to a starving camp that's not only demoralizing because you're surrounded by like dead animals and bodies and things it's also they are so hungry they are probably going to eat the diseased pig or sheep or something and then spread that amongst everyone so it's a really effective way of killing people and actually something i read that i hadn't thought of at all when studying this was that of course if you destroy the castle with stones and you and like by mining and destroying the tower when you get into the tower, you have to repair all of that. Whereas if you kill the camp by Mm. flinging over a couple of infected cows, getting them to eat them, and then, you know, they all die, that's just a clean-up job rather than a rebuilding job. That takes a whole new, like, turn for food deliveries. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they'd be getting a very high rating on um, delivery or just eat. That's that is dire. That's horrible. That's disgusting. Also, surely it's really stupid to send over because you've got to touch the plague victims to send them over, and then you've got to go into the place with all the dead plague people. Yeah, I don't know how. It's not wise, is no, it? No, no, it's not. Would you like a few examples? Yes. Henry V, we know, had dead animals thrown across into the wells of Ron um, in France during his siege in 1418 to 19. And, uh, yeah, they would launch manure corpses in the hope of spreading disease Mm -hmm. and sort of lowering morale. 
We know it happened in places like at the Siege of Kaffa, which is now in Crimea. The attacking Tatar forces would throw bodies of Mongol warriors over who had died of the plague. Mm-hmm. Loads of cases of this. I'm trying not to use too many English examples because I'm sure they will come up in the future and I don't want to ruin the story. Um, but yeah, not nice at all. But very, yeah. very inventive though. Yeah. So they are sort of the main ways of attack. As you can see, there are some very inventive ways. Other inventive ways there were examples of trickery as well which um isn't very chivalric and chivalry is a really big deal at this time but there were lots of spies there were lots of forged letters sent into castles uh pretending to order their surrender from their leader and things like that which weren't real there were also as we've spoken about a lot the last couple of weeks Way too many cases of people just getting fancy dress, dressing up, pretending to be the opposing side and just walking in, which is uh, concerning the amount of times that worked. (laughs) Yeah, and if not dressing up, then sending your wife in to go for a cup of tea and then turning up to collect her and going, oh, it's mine now. Yeah, which episode was that? That was the anarchy. That was Lincoln Castle. Okay, and it was a guy called Ranulph of Chester who who went in and then took the castle and then Stephen besieged the castle and Ranulph escaped and went down to his father-in-law, Robert of Gloucester, who's obviously Matilda's right-hand man and half-brother, and said, so your daughter's still in there? Yeah. Because he'd married, he'd married uh, Gloucester's daughter. But that's when you have the the Battle of Lincoln. I mean, that's an example of of the besiegers becoming attacked. Uh, but there's there's some other examples of actual kind of dress up, which are quite interesting. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about those. We've mentioned them in the last couple of weeks. So there's a good one we talked about for Corfe Castle with Mary Banks. Yeah. So Mary Banks uh, was the wife of a lawyer who was serving under Charles. So they were the they were a royalist family, and so the first attack on Corfe Castle as a as a siege came in June of sixteen forty three. Yeah, by the parliamentarians, and it lasted about six weeks, but it failed. The second attack only succeeded because one of the people inside it got pretty fed up, right, and decided that they didn't really want to be on the side of the king anymore, and so they tricked the colonel of the castle into thinking that these were reinforcements Excellent. for their cause. From what I read, it sounded like they, they turned their jackets inside out to pretend to be for the royalist cause and let them in. It was about, apparently it was about 50 soldiers. Uh, some of them were locals and they knew what the castle kind of looked like from the inside, so they knew which bits that they needed to capture in order to take the castle properly. And when everybody woke up in the morning, they were like, oh, going to <laughs> gonna have to surrender. So actually they were granted... Uh, they were granted mercy. They were granted quarter and they, they were allowed to go free. I think a lot of people had, there was a lot of respect for Mary Banks because she defended this castle with a handful of troops, her, her daughters and her maids. Yeah. And also, you've mentioned there about what happened at the end. Maybe that's something we should talk about as well. Talked a little bit about chivalry. What were the rules around sort of warfare and attacking castles and how was it expected that you would treat the the losers once you you win the castle the source i was reading said that 
if you're a town that's being besieged and you don't surrender, then it's okay to sort of kill its civilians and kind of plunder it and take all its goods because you're blaming the the people who were in the town. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things like that where it's okay. Then you've got things that are whether you whether you commit the thing in war as a cold blooded act or whether it's in the moment. Yeah. You either smoke them out so you can attack them or you you get them to surrender and you sort of you either take them prisoner or you ransom them or something of that nature. You know, that's what you would normally expect to happen. You can there's a couple of interesting sieges from the English Civil War that were that were brought up. So Hopton Castle is one of them in March of 1644. It was a parliamentarian hold and the Royalists were besieging them. And they surrendered to the Royalists uh, and they asked for quarter, which is what they say for mercy. And they weren't allowed. Instead, they had to come out and, uh, in, in quotes, submit to mercy. So basically meaning that they weren't granted safety before they left, they had to, they had to agree that whatever the commanding officer said was fine afterwards would be their outcome, and they so they come out kind of expecting that everything will be okay, because it has been previously for other people, and that you know they they think you know we're we're prisoners, but that's kind of it, and the author was saying that that's kind of a standard thing to think given everything else that had gone on. Particularly women and children are expected to be, allow- mm. be allowed to walk. Yeah, but I think the rules of engagement would mean that a lot of the time you'd expect the soldiers to be able to as as well. I mean, it depends what level you're at as well. If you're just a common soldier, then, you know, later on with, with like Mary Banks and, and her family, they're given, everybody's allowed to walk out. So in, in Hopton Castle, this was one of the things that was brought up as a particular atrocity because instead of being granted quarter uh, most of them were clubbed to death apparently so the colonel described it in quotes as siege surrender and butchery so they were they were turned over to the lower soldiers in the the army that was besieging them so the the common soldiers right yeah not great it's horrendous obviously we can't explain Every single scenario, every scenario, as we mentioned at the beginning, depends on so many different factors. And that includes, as Nick was just talking about, the way the people that surrender are treated at the end. So many different factors. We can't include them all. We've just sort of tried to round everything up for you so that when we talk in the future about sieges and various attacks and defences of castles, hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense. If you have any specific stories that you think are really interesting about particular sieges or attacks on castles, we would love to hear them, wouldn't we, Nick? We would. We would love to hear it. If your castle's been besieged recently, write in and let us know. Let us know. (laughs) We are not a complaint centre, though. We can do nothing about it. (laughs) Yeah, and... With the attacking of castles, we come to the end of season one of Podcastles now. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. How have we got through so many? That's mad. It is. Well, we've had nothing else to do. Yeah. Lockdown sort of provided us with a lot of time to do this, didn't it? it yes. Well, it's nice to be able to see your face every week. Thank you. You too. And just as a little summary, so we can work out where we're up to. We, of course, started with Warwickshire, then we did yes. Oxfordshire, mm-hmm. then we did Berkshire, 
Mm-hmm. And we've just done Dorset, of course. Yeah. So that is four counties, but there are plenty more counties to cover. So podcasters will absolutely be back shortly to talk about more castles. What we want to know from you is what counties do you want to see in season two? We'll probably do four counties again, won't we, Nick? Probably. We want to know which are your favourite castles that you'd like to hear about next time or if you've got a special episode you'd like us to explore. Absolutely. We want to know it all. We've got lots of time to reconvene and think about what we're going to do. So uh, get in touch. You can obviously go to Podcastles on all the social media or drop us an email, podcastlespodcast at .com. Yes, or you can go to our website and reach us through there, which is podcastles.co.uk. Yeah, and also, of course, given that we're coming to the end of the season, we would love to hear which castles and which counties were your favourite to look at. And we will be back very soon, before you know it. Just make sure you're subscribed both to the podcast and to all the social media pages. Make sure you follow us so that you know when season two comes out. Yeah, and we will see you again very soon. We will indeed. Bye. Bye. Bye.